stand as I read God's word to us this morning. Ezra, Nehemiah chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Matthiah and Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkah, and Messiah, and on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malchai, Hashem, Hashbadina, Zechariah, and Meshalem on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hoda, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. One summer when I was in college, I got to teach triathlons to a bunch of high schoolers at a camp in the Ozarks, which is southern Missouri, northern Arkansas. And if you've ever been to the Ozarks in the summer, it is hot and it, it is humid. Now, the campers got their choice in what concentration they wanted to do for the summer or for the weeks that they were there. Of course, the ski group always got the most people, right? You know? And basketball and football, they got lots of people. And I was kind of the last choice sport, right? The ones that they were all filled up, I would get the last ones because someone had to be in this group, right? And you can imagine a bunch of high schoolers in the Ozarks in the summertime of humidity teaching them how to run and the time in the pool wasn't for fun, but it was swimming laps. And the biking time wasn't just for long trail ride, for trail rides, it's for long distance biking. You can imagine there was a lot of walking, a lot of cursing at times by some of the high schoolers, some vomiting from exhaustion. Man, it was a trip, right? But here's the thing that the camp director couldn't find, uh, figure out by the end of the term. They would do these surveys. And our specialty, triathlon, got ranked as the most enjoyable time of any of the sports. And before you say, I just had a bunch of masochists, that was not the case. 
I credit amazing coworkers and other counselors for our enthusiasm, encouragement of encouraging these campers along in this journey and the joy at the end of the term to see these campers swim and bike and run and cross the finish line to see their joy was incredible. Can we find joy when it is hard? Can we? Can we find joy when it is hard? Two, almost two years into pandemic, pandemic, personal trials that I know that many of us have gone through in our lives recently, the waiting time of Advent, is there joy in such places? Well, if you're just joining us, we've been going through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. It was written as one book and separated later through church history. And what we see here in these book, this book or two books, is we see a people that have returned from major despair. It's a period of a hundred years of return as gradually the Israelites come back from what was the Babylonian, then now the Persian Empire, back into a devastated city where the temple had been destroyed, the walls had been destroyed. They return back to the city of Jerusalem. And over this hundred year period, with the adversity that they faced both outside and inside in their own group, they did it. Mission accomplished. They built back the temple. They built back the walls. We have seen that so far in our journey through Ezra and Nehemiah. Last year we saw the walls were rebuilt and they rejoiced. Now we might think, well, what more is there to talk about? But we have six more chapters in Nehemiah. They've done it, right? They built the temple. The walls have been built. What more do we need to talk about? But now it really meet, the rubber meets the road. What is going to maintain this nation? What is going to keep them going? Of course, David mentions Chick-fil-A earlier, and I'll mention it again. Uh, what keeps Chick-fil-A going at Appleton? The long lines, right? They built the building, right? They gave all their promotions. What is going to sustain Chick-fil-A to continue to have the long lines and people to come? Is it simply the spicy chicken sandwich and the milkshakes? That's what's going to keep people going? I don't think so. I think Chick-fil-A has this foundation that has been laid that is more than just the good food although I don't love it as much as David probably does. But it's the friendliness. It's kind of this in this DNA that the people are really nice, and I always feel very loved when I'm at Chick-fil-A. They always get me what I want. It's just a friendly environment. And that seems to be the foundation, not just that the building now has been built, the food is there. There is something more that's the foundation. What is the foundation 
for Israel to maintain and continue and to prosper. Is it now they'll talk about building up their military? Talk about their next building project? Lay out their five-point growth plan for Israel? No. Instead, you see, they come together to hear the reading of the law, the Torah, the Word of God. It's almost like they had planned this, right? That after they got done with the temple and that short, the walls and that short period of time, that they had heard or read in Deuteronomy chapter 31, the Torah, that if you really wanted to fear the Lord, which we saw over and over again as we were reading in Nehemiah, if you really feared the Lord in the seventh month, which is the new year, which is Yom Kippur, it's September, October time in our calendar, that in the seventh month, the whole community, all of Israel would gather for one day to hear the reading of the word and they would celebrate the seventh month this would be this day of celebration and that is what we see here that is what they have done they have all gathered together so let's set the scene for you here the wall has been completed there's this new gate they're gathering inside the walls and this probably public area in this new gate and the people not the leaders the people have requested that Ezra their priestly leader would come and read the law it's both the men and the women and all who can understand probably uh, meaning the children that could understand at that age and here they all are all gathered and here's Ezra on a raised platform of wood, right? And for three to four hours, he's reading the word. It could be worse, people. Three to four hours. And he has 13 other leaders up with him. And then he also has 13 leaders that are going out amongst the people helping them understand and illustrate and explain what they're hearing from the Word. I don't know how that would work. Maybe it's a little small group. Maybe it's them, you know, talking to them about it. And that is the picture that we see on this day. I'm going to admit, for people that may have not grown up in the church this kind of tradition in what we do can seem very weird. This preaching thing in reading from this old book. What is going on? The standing behind a pulpit. We ask children to be here. We have groups that meet during the week that help us understand the scripture that we go through. See, I would argue, I think many in kind of the emerging church or new kind of church form say this kind of way of preaching and teaching the word and those kind of things are antiquated. We need to get past it. The truth is, this is what the precedent is. You see it right here. This is what you do. 
The teaching of the word, the understanding of the word, the having families together to be able to teach it, there is precedent right here. It's both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But it still doesn't answer the question that some of you might have. But why? Why read the word? Why actually explain it? Why actually sit under it? This seems like, again, an antiquated book, a boring tradition. Why do something like this? Maybe some of you are in the why phase of your family. Are any of you there? It's usually like the three to six-year-old kind of phase of life. We've had a couple of big why children. I won't name names of who they are. You can guess who it is. You can talk amongst yourselves of who that person was. But it was, why should I share with my sister? And then you answer the question, because you should care for your sister and her needs. And then, of course, what happens? Why? Surely, as we grow older, we are done with the why questions, right, as adults, right? You're all done with the why questions? Love your boss, even if you don't like your boss. Why? Bear with your spouse, even though they do things you don't like. Why? Care for the least and the lost. Why? What am I supposed to do? It's a good thing? It's a good thing to do? Why? Is there a standard? Is there a way that we should live and act? That's what our culture is trying to figure out right now. Is it by consensus? Oh, the majority of people think this is the way we should live that way. And that's why we should. I don't know if that's even holding up anymore. Why should we love our enemies? We're seeing right now a nation that is wondering if I should really care for those I disagree with. Why should I bear with my family when we disagree politically or about vaccines? Why should I care for the least and the lost when I'm just trying to care for myself and get by in these crazy times? Why should I do these things? Because God calls us to it. He has laid out the way that we should live. This is the standard. And we are seeing right now, we have lived by this standard in our culture for about 2,000 years in Western culture. We are seeing it actually questioned for the first time, which I think is beautiful in this sense that people really have to force, it's not just the culture and Western culture that makes me think about why I should do it, but maybe there is a standard, there is transcendence outside of myself of why I should live the way I do. And maybe 
The why questions will allow us to talk to our neighbors and friends of what the real standard actually is. Why should you love your enemies? Because Jesus Christ loved us, his enemies, and cared for us, and he has shown that to us in his word. Here are the Israelites, right? They have lived apart from the word for probably centuries, and what's happened is made them worse and worse and worse to the point that the Persians took over, the Babylonians took over, the Assyrians. And here, over a hundred years, now they have returned back to Jerusalem. And now, just again, picture, they are standing in the walls and probably can see the temple when about 80 years before this, the walls were totally destroyed. There was no temple. They were living in exile in Persia. And now here they are, 80 years later, the walls are built, the temple is built, and they are back in the land. What would they have been thinking? This is crazy. How did this happen? How did this occur? That we were in a foreign land, ex exiles, and now we're back, and the temple is built, and the wall has been built. They probably would have said, we serve a great God. And it doesn't it not make sense that now they say, we should probably listen to what he says. Because we have not been listening. Pull out the word. Pull out the Torah. God actually might be right about stuff. He can be trusted. We should follow what he says. We're in Advent, right? Where we celebrate the coming of Christ. As John says, the word became flesh. Some of us, you might be saying, well, I'm not sitting in Jerusalem seeing the walls or the temple completed. No, in fact, you have seen something better. Christ has come. He has freed us from our sin. He has put us in a wonderful family. Why should I listen to this hard stuff like loving my enemies, giving to others, holding my tongue from gossip? Why should we? Because we have seen that our God is good and he has dwelt among us and he has saved us that he might actually have something to tell us that he might know better than us. And you see the reaction. Could you imagine? You're sitting and listening to the word for three to four hours, and here they are. Amen, amen, meaning truly, truly. Their hands raised, bowing their heads, their faces to the ground, and how great God is. They respond physically 
to what is going on in their hearts. I'm going to admit, and maybe some of us will admit, we have better physical reactions to good pizza and Packer games than we do to hearing the Word of God. We more readily spontaneously respond in shouts of joy and raising our hands when we see a touchdown, when we hear our God's Word being preached and hear the Word being spoken. Bruce Marker, God bless his soul, can't be the only one in the history of our church that says amen to God's word. There has to be more than him that can spontaneously respond to God's word and say amen. I know we're Presbyterians. I know we're Wisconsinites. Stoic German people. But we can say amen to his word. We can raise our hands. We can fall to our knees. We can weep at his word. And we're not Pentecostals. You know, you can do that. Even in a Presbyterian church. Well, it goes on, verses 9 through 12. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions, and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So here we have the governor, Nehemiah, and the priest, Ezra, and also the religious leaders, the Levites, all saying in three separate ways, do not grieve. And this is what's happened. The people have heard the law. They realize what a mess they've made of things and how they have lived a different way. And they say, they're probably saying, this could happen to us again. Exile for not following the law. Look how we have botched this and what has happened. Right? This is the pastor's dream. The kind of response, people crying, grieving, feeling convicted. But no, Ezra and Nehemiah, the Levites say, do not grieve. Do not weep. Because this day is set apart for the Lord. This day is not about you. It's about God and his position. It's about his rescue for you. It's about his glory. It's about his provision. 
You should tell others about how great our God is. Bring them into your home and celebrate. Don't look at just how messed up you are. Look at how God is faithful and good. Now I know this little line in this passage, the joy of the Lord is our strength, is on refrigerators, is maybe crocheted on something that is probably, you know, maybe on your mirror at home. You might have it written down. I mean, we just pull it from this context. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And sometimes we don't realize where it comes from, and it just becomes a cliche. What does it mean? It means even in Israelite failure, even in their mess, even in all that they have done in the past, God is showing up. He shows his beauty, his care, his love for his people, his pleasure in them. Even when they are weeping for what they have done wrong, the Lord says, I look upon you with joy. Look at what I have done for you. The temple, the walls, you're gathered together. I am pleased in you. Let my pleasure in you, let my covenant faithfulness, let my love for you be your joy even when you are under trial. May 19th, 1780. They called it the dark day in New England. The day started off fine. The sun rose like any other day. You could see it in the sky. But then by the middle of the day, it became pitch black. People had to light candles to just go outside and see the legislator of Connecticut was gathered on that day. And they debated right there in the legislature, you can read in their records, adjourning because they thought this was the day of judgment. One of the legislators, Abraham Davenport, said this during the debate. I am against adjournment. The day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for an adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. I wish, therefore, the candles may be brought. I wonder, Christian, how many of you are living like you want it to be adjourned right now. Look how bad it is. We grieve, we live in pity, we're paralyzed. We say, let us adjourn. But instead, let these three separate groups come to you and whisper in your ear or shout to you or comfort you. Do not grieve. And it says in this passage, what did they do? They went to make great rejoicing. 
great rejoicing. Christian, as we look at Advent, we live in the age of Emmanuel. God with us. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That is the age we live in now. Now. What will keep us going? I know you're tired. I know, I feel it, I sense it. I sense our weariness. Do we need to manufacture our happiness? Oh, once we open back up, then it will be fine. Once all the masks are gone, then it'll be fine. Once economic news is better, then it'll be fine. Once we have a new person in political office, then it'll be fine. Once I get a Christmas gift that I like, then it will be fine. The joy of the Lord is our strength. That is what carries us. The God of the universe has delivered on his promises. He's delivered us from a broken world. Let us not adjourn, Christian. Let us not retreat. Instead, let us open our homes. Let us welcome people with hospitality and love. And let us show others the joy of the Lord is our strength. Verse 13, on the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths, for from, for from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to the day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So what has happened all the fathers, the heads of the family have gotten together with Ezra and the leaders and they read the, the word again and it gets this reading probably again in Deuteronomy chapter 31 about this festival that happens in the seventh month on the 15th day. 
called the Feast of Booths. And what happened was, it was a celebration that Moses said that the people should all celebrate, is to remember when they were wandering in the wilderness when they came out of Egypt, God provided for them when they were in the wilderness. So therefore, in history, to remember God's provision, they should leave their houses, build these temporary structures, live in them, and eat in them for a week to remember God's provision. Now, for some reason, this hasn't been being done in its fullness since its inception. Maybe they weren't doing it with the right heart. Maybe they were doing it without actually going outside and living for seven days. But here they fulfill it. They do it. And in that, there is great rejoicing as they're living outside of their house in this little shanty, either above their house or in a courtyard or wherever it might be. Even in that place, for seven days, they are greatly rejoicing. I don't get it. I've been camping, okay? I've done a couple days outside the house with young children, and I was not greatly rejoicing. Imagine seven days outside your house with your kids, making meals out there. How can you find joy, great rejoicing, in such a situation? The director of our camp, he, of course, coached the basketball section. And he wondered why I was getting such good reviews about triathlon. Because he saw from the basketball courts these kids, you know, going like this, kids crying, right? Kids, you know, getting sick, you know, complaining. And he saw that, you know, all the time while coaching the basketball, this happening during the triathlon group. And he's wondering if I'm just doctoring the, you know, the things because maybe I can get a raise or something. It didn't work that way. But, but then he came to the last day. And he saw those kids get across the finish line. And he saw that through all their suffering, there was good. There was joy. That my colleagues and I, when we were standing next to those kids, encouraging them and saying, it's going to be okay. You can do this. We believe in you. That through all of that, they saw there was purpose. See, there was a remembering of God's faithfulness when they were outside in those booths. That even in the pain in the wilderness, even in exile in Persia, they remembered that God had not forgotten them. Have you taken time to look at God's provision? Have you ever gone back and eaten one of those pizzas that you had to eat when you didn't have much money? Drive by where you used to live. Read your old, your old journal. Have you rejoiced in where God has taken you? And his provision. 
might sound crazy to Aaron, but I long for that small house that we lived in in seminary, working on that property with two kids in a crummy job. And it's not just nostalgia. It's because the Lord was close that we relied on him in that. He was faithful. He was glorious. He was good. Come on, really? You say that now, Dan, because you have a house. You have kids. You have it good. You don't know. You don't know what it's like in my situation right now. You have no clue. Really? You talk about joy? Who would want to live in a booth? Who would want to live in a shack? Who would want the kind of life I'm in right now? You know, joy is one of those themes in Advent. And I wonder why. It's a story about a family who gave birth in a farm stall. They had no home. Think of this. The king of the universe was born in a booth. And there was rejoicing in it. God's provision in a tough situation. The angels, the shepherds. Our God knows what it's like to be in those places. And in those places, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Who celebrates such hard times? Who does crazy stuff like that? Who would do that, go out in a booth and celebrate seven days being in the wilderness? Who would celebrate on a constant basis something so tragic? We would. We celebrate and rejoice in our Savior dying upon the cross. And I'm so thankful for Eric Keelish reminding me this, this week of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What a perplexing verse! He went to the cross with joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Take it in. Eat it. Celebrate it. Do not grieve, but rejoice that he will carry us through. That he is united with us. He is our strength.
Maybe some of you have questions about all I've been talking about this morning. Or what's been sung. What's been said. I would encourage you, if you have questions about it or don't know about it, confused, please talk to myself or David or any of the elders. We want to make sense of the word. It's clear. It's not some higher knowledge. You're not going through some levels. It's clear. Jesus Christ came for you, died upon the cross, rose from the dead for you to have salvation. That is the gospel. If you believe that, come forward. Take him in.